Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. Well, I am excited for this. I guess I kind of have to be, don't I? It's not really saying much for me to be excited for this. I will say this. We had a different, we actually had a different sermon series plan to start today. I had done some like legwork on the sermon series. And then I was working with like our graphics people to get like a vibe going with art and videos. It was great. Really looking forward to it. And for whatever reason, it just didn't sit right. You know, it wouldn't have been like bad. We'll do it another time. It just felt like God was leading right here. And to be perfectly candid with you, I don't fully get it. I just believe that God is leading us to be on these pages of scripture together for the next eight weeks. And I'm just gonna submit to that. And I look forward to learning the full why as to why we're gonna be on these pages. I am excited though. Let's, let's do it. Matthew chapter five is where we're gonna be. It's page 809 in the Bibles in the chairs. Otherwise, I know a lot of people use their phones or tablets, the bridge app with notes and the Bible on one spot. But Matthew chapter five, We're just going to look at a few verses together, kind of do a deep dive on these verses. Did you hear about the the new epidemic that's going on? I'm not talking about COVID or anything like that. Um, Something very different. And and this is sinister. And you're going to think I am joking about this. This is is not a joke. This actually comes from the National Library of of Medicine. Uh, Government, they, they formally announced that we are experiencing a narcissism epidemic. And you might know a few people who are suffering from this, this epidemic. I think we've all felt this, but it's just really interesting that our government is now formalizing it. Like, it's not just a joke now. It's not just a feeling that we can kind of feel like this is a real problem in our society. And so the money question has been, as people have been kind of debating about this, is like, what, what's the cause? What are the contributors to this narcissism epidemic that we find ourselves in? And most appropriately have pointed to, well, it's got to be social media. You know, it's that attention-grabbing platform, TikTok. My goodness, I don't have TikTok. I see it sometimes, though. I'm like an old person. I see it later on on Instagram. TikTok is annoying. And, and I know I sound like an old man, but like TikTok is annoying. Like, what a great way to ruin a song to me. It's all that lip syncing. Okay, let's get your whipped man to video you lip syncing a song. Like that song was cool. And now when I hear it, I just think of a dancing wannabe influencer. Old man rant done. But all that to say, social media has greatly influenced narcissism. Our minds tend to think about, you know, what's postable here, kind of looking for what's next in the viral wagon I can kind of jump on. And those posts, most of those posts are a reflection of me. It it feeds attention and it can lead to narcissistic tendencies. Uh, Social media is probably the biggest player in that, but it's certainly not the only one. Interestingly enough, this tend toward narcissism actually started back in 1960. So for any of you sitting here thinking, yeah, the younger generation is narcissistic. Hey, you started it, all right? So we're all, we're all in the same boat together. Since 1960, books. You remember books, don't you? You sit down, you read, and you actually, like, you don't scroll. You actually turn the page, and there's no lip syncing and bad dancing on it at all. Books are kind of nice. But since 1960, there's been this major upswing in the use of individualistic pronouns, like I and me. So before 1960, authors, and really the nation as a whole, but authors used the words we and us far, far, far more 
than today. Today we use more I and me because that's who we like. Another player in this is messages and programming and education. So from a very young age, and you'll see this on like PBS Kids, for example, and I'm not like against PBS Kids, but you know what we'll tell our kids, hey, believe in yourself. You gotta love yourself. My favorite show growing up, I don't know if any of you ever saw the show, but uh, Arthur, you ever watched the show Arthur? It is a bad show. Arthur the Art, it was a very weird show, but he's an aardvark or something. I don't even know what he was, but Arthur. Uh, and the theme song of Arthur was, if you remember the line, just believe in yourself, that's the place to start. Now, interestingly enough, we're gonna see Jesus say the exact opposite. He starts in the exact opposite place. But that was just, that was, that was sung to kids. Hey, believe in yourself because that's the place to start. And it's those, it's those messages that hang on posters in school. Uh, it's on programming. Unfortunately, some churches now, you go to some churches and they teach that. Hey, you gotta really love yourself and, be, and, and believe in yourself. I told my daughter this week, actually, she had a math test and she was, you know, I was kissing her goodbye. She was jumping out of my truck. And I said, hey, babe, don't believe in yourself, all right? You failed the practice quiz. <laughs> Don't believe in yourself, you'll get an F. Believe in studying and hard work. I know, I'm a terrible dad, but just don't believe in yourself, believe in the right thing, all right? But whether it's, it's social media, whether it's literature, whether it's common messages, whether it's instant gratification, it's another feeder into all of this, whatever the cause is, here we are. We live in a world that is addicted to being famous. We gotta get out there. It's attention grabbing. At five seconds of fame, going viral, we really get our identity and our worth from attention and likes. And as narcissism is on the rise, our mental health is on the decline. And it's actually following the exact same trend, which is fascinating. It's an epidemic that we're in. And the cure, believe it or not, is older than the epidemic itself. 2,000 years ago, God, on, God in flesh stood on a hill overlooking a crowd and said, I'm not looking for the ones who want attention. And I'm not looking for the ones who want to be famous. I'm looking for the opposite. And today we take a deep dive into that treasure of Jesus's words. Let me pray. And we're just going to jump right into this. God, we do thank you for your word. And for many of us in this room, we've been opening our Bibles for, for many, many years. And it's a beautiful thing. For some of us, it's been maybe just a couple of days, maybe even for some of us, it's been the first time. And, and that's a beautiful thing too, just new to all of this. But Father, whether we're new to all of this or not, may this not be a monotonous time, but may we see your word through fresh eyes. May we allow your Holy Spirit to convict us as he illuminates this text to us. And Father, you will speak as you always do through your word. I ask that we listen and really tune into what you have for us today. And we thank you for this beautiful time that we can gather together with brothers and sisters and hear from dad. Just what an amazing thing. We thank you. Pray, pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the lens of scripture zooms into Matthew chapter five, which is where we're gonna be for the next eight weeks, we find ourselves with quite the view to really drink in. It's Northern Israel, the precious sea of Galilee. In this arid region, this 13-mile-long lake sticks out as really a life-giving source, one of the only life-giving sources for miles. And sitting just below sea level, the land slopes down, making this bowl, providing the perfect natural amphitheater for large crowds to gather. That's exactly what's happening today. See, on one of the more gradual, inclined hills, it's collecting a crowd. It's an eclectic crowd, a crowd that's mainly dominated by 
four agrarian faces, farmers, fishermen, and, and masons, but sprinkled into the crowd are a few wealthier families. Moms lay out tapestry blankets and unpack uh, little lunches for the families as kids run up and down the hill, jumping off the boulders that just kind of pepper, pepper the hillside. The breeze blowing off the lake provides that, that, that perfect relief on this intense dry heat. See, for most of these families sitting on this hillside, this is a day off and it's extremely rare. For most of them, it's, it's enough to just sit for a whole day and drink in this view. But little do they know that the moment that they're about to experience for thousands of years, generations will study what their ears are about to hear. And we read it in verse one. It says, Matthew chapter five, Matthew writes this, who was here that day. He writes, seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain hill and he sat down and his disciples came to him. Now, we don't know what hill this is. So if you were to go to Israel today, and I'd love for you to come to Israel with the bridge uh, one day, but if you were to go to Israel uh, with us one day, you would find that there's this, there's this traditional spot called the Mount of Beatitudes. We don't know that it happened here. It's just what they call tradition, which means they put a Catholic church there on the hill. Now, interestingly enough, uh, this church was financed by Benito Mussolini. And so this church came along, claimed this spot, said, all right, this is where it happened. And then, you know, it built some really nice gardens. And then it charges you to come in and walk around and look at things. And then nuns yell at you for being too loud. The bridge, we get yelled at every time by nuns, every time we go to this church. That, you can talk about traditional spot. That's the bridge tradition to get yelled at by nuns at this spot. Um, I will say this though, it's, it's a beautiful view of the lake and we do go here for a reason just because of, of the view and the gardens. And I, I really enjoy taking the group here and we read the Sermon on the Mount. And we just kind of envision it and then we sing until we get yelled at and it's just, it's a great spot. Now, was it here where Jesus taught? No idea. Uh, it did not have gardens. Definitely didn't have nuns running around shushing people. Uh, during Jesus's time, it would have looked a lot more like a, a brownish, a brownish prairie peppered with boulders. And so when Jesus taught, as, as it says here, Matthew writes, he sat. It was rabbinical tradition for teachers to sit down. And then those listening oftentimes would then stand. Now we have that flipped right now. I think we should go back to the old way of doing things. You should all stand and I should sit. Some of you might, you know, not struggle to stay awake. So, <laughs> so Matthew's really just kind of painting this scene here in, in verse one, up on a hillside, Jesus sits down on a boulder. People are gathering around him. Many of these people have traveled far to get, not all of them, but a lot of them have traveled far. Many have spent a lot of money traveling through dangerous areas. It's dangerous to take a trip. So they're traveling through dangerous areas. It's like a once in a lifetime trip for most of these people sitting on the hillside. And there they wait to hear these life-giving words from this man that they've heard of called Jesus. Now, Jesus is about to get into, as you see the headings in your Bible, Jesus is about to get into what has become known as the Beatitudes. Uh, again, that's the heading in your Bible, but it's kind of funny because as we read through these verses, Jesus never really says Beatitude. It's a Latin word, um, so it came later on. It's a great word though, Beatitude, because there's no English word that can really mm, fully capture what Jesus is about to say. So Beatitudes in Latin means a series of blessings, or blessed, happy, joy, 
Words that are very interchangeable. Sometimes Christians come along and they'll say, you know, happy is bad and joy is good. That's a false dichotomy. Sometimes Christians get really good at making false dichotomies. It's just bad homework. Words have a semantic range. So you have happy, joy, blessed. It's all in the same semantic range. They're not opposed. They, they can't be. And so beatitude, which is Latin, is most often translated as blessed. So a, a good translation. In fact, if you're reading the ESV, that's what it's going to say, blessed. The problem with, not, not the problem, but the problem that I can have, I guess, with blessed is we tend to see blessed more as a religious word today. That way, we don't necessarily use that outside of like church. We think of like blessing as like, like a priest or like some sort of ritualistic, you know, blessing. And that's fine. That, that's not a problem. Other than that, Jesus was not using a religious word at all. He was just using a very everyday word like happy. In fact, a lot of translations will say happy. And I think that's just kind of better because it's not as, as religious as, as we see it today. Some translate, and I kind of like this translation, as bliss. Beatitude is really bliss. Just this steady happiness, unencumbered by the world, unaffected by circumstances, unaffected by TikTok videos, you know, just the, the inner bliss. And Jesus is about to teach us how to live our lives with this bliss. And we're gonna see that Jesus flips the script and commands us to do the exact opposite of what everybody else is telling us to do. So verse two, he says, and he opened his mouth and taught them to open his mouth. When I first read this, like, of course he opened his mouth. Kind of seems like a waste of words here, Matthew, doesn't it? Like, if Jesus is going to teach them, we figured that he would open his mouth. Like, thanks for clearing that up, Matthew. This whole time, I thought Jesus was just playing charades there on the rock. You know, was he a mime or something? You know, why even say he opened his mouth? Opened his mouth. It's a bit odd in English as we read it. But in the original language, Matthew is saying, what Matthew's saying is actually makes more sense. Opened his mouth means that Jesus started his sermon in a very serious way. I find that interesting because Jesus told a lot of jokes. Jesus could get a crowd laughing and he often did. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts serious. And I think there's reasons for it. First off, people have been on the hillside waiting. There's lots of talking. And so Jesus just starts out very serious, very commanding. Hey, hey, pay, pay attention. Jesus starts out very commanding, very serious. But also Jesus knows what he's about to say will change their lives if they apply it. It will change these families. It will change generations. It'll change their towns. It'll change the region. It'll change the world. We have to remember for thousands of years, Jesus has watched humanity drift away from the way that he designed them. For thousands of years, his heart has been breaking as people have been drifting away. So for Jesus, this is the moment right here here he is with them. He's going to bring them back. Like, this is serious. This is powerful. If it is applied, but it must first be heard. And so Jesus starts, he doesn't start with like some throwaway intro. Like, this is it. They need to hear it. Saying, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. What does that actually mean? It's not something we say about each other or even really in conversation, right? Like I'm never, I'm not, I'm going to come up to you after the service and be like, you know what, Denim? I love Denim. You know what I love about Denim? The guy's just poor in spirit. Like what a great guy. I just love Denim's spiritual poverty. You know, we don't talk that way. And so what does this actually mean? Well, some translations, in fact, your translation, if you're looking at it, different translation might say humble in spirit, which really does make sense. It's kind of getting the gist of what Jesus is saying. He's talking about humility, but there's more depth to it than that. So I just want to unpack this more. Poor. Let's start there. Poor. Don't need to talk about that much, but 
Let's remember, the people in this crowd, they knew how to be poor. They're pretty good at being poor. They had next to nothing. So Jesus right here is speaking their language. When you're poor, you realize you can't offer much. It's like the single mom who approached me a few years ago. And we were in the middle of like a, a building campaign, raising money to build a, a new church building. And, and she said to me, she said, I, I want to contribute, but I just, I can't offer. I can't offer much. It's like, it's a beautiful heart. Couldn't offer much in terms of finances. That's this crowd. But here's the key to this verse. In fact, if you look at your Bibles, there's a key in this verse that really, really opens up the text. There's just two words. The key to this verse is in spirit. This is what unlocks the verse for more study. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, is what I'm talking about, this bliss that you can experience has nothing to do with how much you have physically. Rich people aren't more likely to be happy. Poor people aren't more likely to be happy. It has nothing to do with that, no matter what society tells you. Instead, let me tell you who finds this rare bliss. It's the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit understand that no matter what they have, whether a lot or a little, they understand they are dependent on God every single minute of every single day. The poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit is to be in touch with your dependence. Nothing to offer spiritually. They know they are stained by their own sin. They are depraved and there is nothing they can do to earn God's love or acceptance. They offer nothing. Well, my goodness, Jesus, that's depressing. Like Jesus, you're telling me that to find this perfect happiness, this bliss that you want me to live with, I need to embrace the depressing reality that I am nothing. Yes, because when you realize the nothing you have, you are then in position to find everything. Though you are stained with sin, God washes you through Jesus. Though you are depraved, God adopts you. Though you have nothing, God gives you everything. It's the start of the gospel. This is where we start. Opening our eyes to our spiritual reality and God's love. And when you live in that reality, there's nothing like it. What more do we need? Why struggle for more attention? Why struggle for more power? As one of my, my favorite um, switch foot lyrics goes, I found all that I want and all that I long for is you. It's just this, re, this, this blessed bliss. Here's one way to think about it. I think about it, when I think about porn spirit, I think about my wife giving birth. The day that my first daughter was born, this is Madison, I get the like, first time holding her. Um, the day that my wife gave birth, I was on, I was on cloud nine. Told her, I was like, ah, I have a daughter. I didn't know I was gonna get two more. It'd been even better. I was like, ah, oh, I have a daughter. And she kind of looks like me, poor girl. And just holding her in that moment was just, was bliss. And a major part of that bliss that day was I didn't do anything. My wife was in labor for 26 hours while I ate hot dogs. She was in pain and she was exhausted and I kind of felt great. So I'm holding her, having this child, I brought nothing to the table. Like I did nothing yet I get the blessing. I did nothing. I did something, but like the one thing I think about the most, you know, that was part of the blessing actually. My wife, she actually sent me a meme the other day that said pregnancy is like the ultimate group project. She does 99.9% of the work, but both get the A. It's like, that is so good and, and absolutely so true. But part of that blissful moment as a dad holding the blessing, she's like, I don't deserve her. 
And I'm thankful for my wife and the sacrifice and the beautiful gift that she just, she just gave me. And I bring nothing. It was, it was humbling, yet it was beautiful and it was bliss. This is the idea that Jesus is getting at here. We bring nothing to the table. God does everything on the cross and the empty tomb, yet we're the ones holding the blessing of, of forgiveness. Jesus is that reality. When you can live in that reality and engage that reality, that is pure bliss. Live in that. Now, here's the thing with all this. This makes sense. It makes sense. Like realizing you offer nothing spiritually, it's definitely, okay, yeah, it's definitely backwards to what our, you know, our attention grabbing society is. But, you know, we can read this and biblically and even logically, it can make sense. But what does this look like practically? Because it kind of still feels ethereal. Like I like me, I read this and I think, okay, this is great. Porn spirit, I want this. But like, how do I get in touch with that spiritual dependence more? How can I feel this spiritual poverty more? Like, I know I'm bankrupt. So is it just like, I got, just got to live knowing or is there something I can do to be more poor in spirit throughout my days? And Jesus would say, I totally got you. You just have to keep on listening to the sermon more. And this is where we see the brilliance of Jesus. As he applies this, this, this reality later on in the sermon. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, verses 38 to 48, Skip over there, verses 38 to 48. Jesus shows what it's like to modify your behavior to live poor in spirit. I love this about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives the Beatitudes, and then it's like, with a lot of them, he's like, here's how then you apply this. Jesus is a very applicable teacher. Here's what he says, verse 38. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So that's the script, but I flip it and say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Then he goes on to talk about loving your enemies. Pray for your enemies. When's the last time you prayed for that person that gives you a headache? When's the last time you prayed for that person, blessings on that person that causes all the drama and division within the family or within the office? Jesus said, even the lost can love their friends. We're different. We love our enemies. And you can only do that if you realize your spiritual poverty. Jesus is literally giving us an outline right here. You wanna be poor in spirit? Forgive. You wanna get in touch with your spiritual dependency? Start forgiving people. Spiritual poverty isn't just this emotion that you feel. It's a way of life. It impacts how you live. You want to be poor in spirit? Stop trying to get even. Stop it. Stop the revenge. Stop fighting back. Stop letting them live in your head rent free. Stop holding on to those offenses. Stop keeping score. We have nothing. Why would we keep score? We all have scorecards, don't we? I mean, I do. Now they did this. They owe me that. I won't forget that. You know, my spouse, my friend, my boss, every scorecard that we hold on to is proof that we don't realize our spiritual poverty. Every scorecard we hold on to is a barrier to us living blessed. But Jesus says. So there was an interesting practice during this time. According to the old law, you were expected to forgive somebody three times, according to the old law. So if somebody, you know, ruins your fence, in your yard, it's like, all right, strike one. And then a year later, you know, they trip and they break your water jug or something. It's like, okay, well, let's strike two. Then after strike three, you were not expected to forgive. 
And so people would actually keep records, often on rocks. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered some of, some of these rocks, some of these scorecards, these ancient records of offenses. Like, well, Rebecca said that to me. And Simon, you know, look, you know, took that. And the neighbors trampled over my garden. And, and we look at this, we kind of smile, right? Like, we think like, this is silly. Like, come on, get over it. Like, you're actually taking time to tally people's offenses? Like, come on, grow up. No, no I think this is many of our heads. This is many of our minds. Oh, sure, we don't have a rock that we kind of scratch our tallies on, but, but we have people, we have situations that are living in our head rent-free and we can't shake it. Scorecard's up here. It's part of the reason we struggle so much with mental health today. Our minds are like overloaded computers. So many files of scorecards and offenses. But Jesus on the Mount completely flips the script. He says, forget three times. Forget three times. Just live forgiving. Forgive constantly. Let it go. Cancel the debts. Forget your little tallies. Move on. We think of it, we're like, okay, what? Well, all right. But how, Jesus? Like that sounds great, but like that's easier said than done. Maybe. Unless you realize your spiritual poverty. When you're in touch with your spiritual poverty, you don't keep score. Because the scoreboard would read, you're always losing. The way I think of it is like last fall, as some of the guys on staff play golf and I never play with them because I hate golf. Like, look at me. Do I even look like a golfer? You know, I, I don't even, I can't even like fit in with them. Um, I look like the guy who you find sleeping on the fifth hole. I, I love, I love what Mark Twain wrote. Mark Twain wrote, golf is just a good walk spoiled. <laughs> It's like so good. Like, let's dress up, guys, and pay money to go walk through the park. Like, come on. Anyway, I so these guys were—they've been trying to talk me into golfing. So finally, like last fall, I caved. I went golfing. I'm terrible, and, and so the whole time as we're on the course, I kept on saying, "I'm not keeping score. I'm not keeping score. I'm not keeping score." Because if I kept score, it would just be depressing. Jesus here is teaching that you should go throughout life the way Junior goes throughout a golf course. Thinking, like, you know, I'm not keeping score here. Because if I kept score, it would just be depressing. Sure, I might have something on someone, but God has a ton on me. And he burned the scorecard. He nailed that scorecard to the cross. Who am I to hold on to a scorecard? Because the real score, the real score is I'm far worse than any sort of, what any sort of critics say I am. I'm far worse. Like, just like you, I've had people say things about me. Some even like have written things about me. And turn people against me. Oh, I've even heard of some things that people have said about me. Might be even true. And then I'll spend I'll, I'll spend hours sulking as a victim. It's like, oh, so persecuted, you know. And then it it takes me too long, but then I realize it's like, nah, you know what? I'm worse. You got boo-hoo, they mistreated me. They said that about me. Like, whatever they're saying, I'm far worse than what they're saying. When we're in touch with our spiritual poverty, forgiving is way easier. It's why the spirit spiritually poor live in blessed bliss because offenses, they just, they just roll right off of them. But it's not all that Jesus had. He applies poor in spirit in another way. Flip over to chapter six, starting at verse 16. I know we're kind of bouncing around here, but I, I want to follow this outline that Jesus has in here for applying poor in spirit. So chapter six, verse 16, Jesus continues on. He says, and when you fast, now that's really interesting. If you look at that, 
if you write in your Bibles, it might even be worth circling when. Not if you fast, he says when you fast. So there's an assumption. Jesus assumes that his followers, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, Jesus assumes that you're going to fast. And it gives us point number two, straight out of the mouth of Jesus. You wanna get in touch with your spiritual poverty? Number two, fast, fast. Now this is a little bit interesting because there will be some confusion over fasting. So let's just talk about fasting for just a second. What is fasting? People use it differently today. In fact, you hear about it a lot. Some people do intermittent fasting for health reasons. And um, some people call like their diet, they're, like they're fasting from carbs and all that's like fine and physically beneficial, but that's not, not to be confused with biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is abstaining from food, not for physical benefits, but for spiritual benefits. Biblical fasting is not like a way to get skinnier. It's not like a special diet in that sense. And it's, it's not a fun discipline. The whole idea of biblical fasting is to weaken you, to abstain from food, to feel weak, to be zapped of energy, to feel those hunger pains, sometimes to experience a headache because of lack of energy. My goodness, why would Jesus call us to do that? I thought he loved us. Because when you're acquainted with your physical weakness, and some of you know this just from having health issues. When you're acquainted with your physical weakness, you suddenly feel dependent on God. Fasting reminds you that your sustenance comes from God and from God only. It's one of the quickest routes to being in touch with your spiritual poverty. In fact, think about this way. We live in a culture where everybody screams at us at every turn as far as pleasure. Just on the way to church, maybe you saw that. It's like Starbucks, Chipotle, Dunkin' Donuts, you know, all of these different pleasures. This world is baiting us into all of these pleasures, screaming. Fasting turns the volume down on society's scream. Fasting reminds you and I of the weakness that we mask. We are dependent, we are weak. And when we feel that, Jesus says there's a blessedness that comes with that because you're in touch then with your spiritual poverty and you realize how great God is and how weak you are. And that is bliss. So he continues on, keep on reading. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your heavenly father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's kind of interesting. There's something about diets that always get us talking, isn't there? Like, what's the joke? How do you know somebody's on keto? They'll just tell you. You know, it's, it, we, for some reason, whether it's like vegan or, you know, organic, whatever, like we're just kind of proud of our ways and, and we promote that. And that's human nature, I suppose, whatever. Jesus says here is, is with fasting, don't do that. Do not do that. Fasting is a private discipline between you and God. And if you get attention for it, it ruins the point. The point is, is to feel weak, dependent, and humble. And so Jesus warns us, getting attention for this discipline is antithetical. It's completely counterproductive. The point is to feel low, not feel high. You want the feeling of being poor in spirit? You want to be in touch with your spiritual poverty? Be a forgiver, fast. And then number three, follow. Follow. Now, you could pull this point from almost any sort of part of the Sermon on the Mount because this whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is just telling people how to live practically. 
That's the thing. I, I got to say this. Jesus was an extremely practical teacher. I know I just said that. I, I, I want to say it again. It, it's why at the very end of the sermon, Matthew writes that people were enamored by Jesus because he spoke not as the scribes. The scribes, they love their big words and fancy theology and all that. Jesus's teaching, though deep, was easy to apply. He had authority. He told them how to change their lives and how to follow. And sometimes Christians can get way too into like, well, that's way too practical. It's like, well, read a sermon on Jesus because the Sermon on the Mount, as we're going to see for the next eight weeks, is extremely practical. But Jesus gets most serious in chapter seven, verse 21 though. And again, I know we've been kind of bouncing all around, but chapter seven, verse 21, I'll I'll pull it up here on the screen. But this is a verse that haunts people. As a pastor, this might be the number one verse that I get the most questions on. This right here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, speaking at the end of times, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, sobering. As a kid, I remember reading this and just fear. And I still have this fear, even just as as one of your pastors, I have this fear of anybody in our church family experiencing this one day. Jesus is saying, this isn't about fanboying out about me. I'm not looking for fans. I'm not looking for likes. The kingdom of heaven isn't a city filled with a bunch of hot air a lot of talk and a lot of show. The kingdom of heaven is not populated by fans, but it is inhabited by followers. It's those who actually do what I tell them to do, who aim to live poor in spirit, to live as a forgiver because we've been forgiven, to embrace our weakness so that we can welcome his power. This is what it is to follow. Now, having said that, to be clear, Jesus is not saying this gives us salvation. Jesus is not promoting works-based salvation here. Salvation is a gift on the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a gift. You can't earn a gift. If you earn a gift, it's not a gift. Jesus paid for the gift. It's why he screamed from the cross, it is finished. There's nothing left to do. It is done. It is finished. The point that Jesus is making here is when you accept that, that gift of salvation, you're not going to be the same. The difference between a follower of Jesus and an unbeliever is not just when you go to church. It's not even just that you like Jesus. That's Jesus' point in this verse. The difference between a believer and a non-believer should be stark. Very different from our neighbors. But I fear that too many people, especially in Western culture today, are trying to fill the gap in between. I like Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus. I'll follow some of these rules that, you know, Christians follow here. I'll try to hit up church when I can, you know, serve, you know, when I feel like I can serve. And Jesus would say, okay, all right, but where's the surrender? Where's the submission? Because my followers recognize their spiritual poverty and it wrecks them to the point that they forgive to a ridiculous degree. They champion submission. My followers embrace weakness because they know that's where they meet dad. Jesus's point here is I'm gonna tell many Jesus fans, I don't know you. I don't know you. There was no surrender. There was no recognition of spiritual poverty. There was no love for the enemies. There was no forgiveness. You know, your forgiveness really lacks a lot. There's no submission. None of that gives you salvation, but it's proof you were not wrecked by me. So depart. I don't know you. I never met you in weakness. You never depended on me. You never really trusted me with forgiving much. I don't know you. We didn't rub shoulders. It's a scary, sobering verse. 
The truth is we're all poor in spirit. We're all spiritually bankrupt. It's just not all of our eyes will really see it. But the one who does recognize their own spiritual poverty, there's is the kingdom of heaven. This isn't just some cute saying to memorize. It's not an overstatement and it's not wasted words. It's a daily call. Jesus daily calls you, live as nothing. Every day, live poor. G.K. Chesterton is one of my favorite writers. In fact, we shared a G.K. Chesterton quote last week. And part of the reason I, I love him is he just looks disheveled. And it's just like, I feel you, bro. I totally get it. Here's where G.K. Chesterton is very different from me. He is one of the most brilliant minds. He was friends with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, His books were highly influential and he's still influencing long after his death. But while G.K. was still alive, the, the Times of London actually did a series where they asked the world's renowned writers and authors to address a question. And the question was, is what is the problem with the universe? So each writer took their stab at this question, writing eloquent and intellectual pieces about the problem with the broken world using history and science and sociology. G.K. Chesterton was, of course, invited into the series, one of the most prominent of writers, and the Times eagerly awaited his piece. And on one morning, the mailroom finally received what they were waiting for, an envelope from Chesterton. They promptly delivered it to the editor's desk. The editor, excited to publish, quickly opened the envelope. But to his surprise, he did not find a long-winded, eloquent article that would compete with the other famous minds. Instead, the editor found a scrap of paper with one line that wrote, the problem with the universe is me, signed G.K. Chesterton. That is a man living in touch with his spiritual poverty. I have nothing, I bring nothing, I am a wretched sinner, and the problem is me. And it was Jesus who said on that hill that day, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are four words that come to many people's minds. It's come to your mind, it's come to my mind before. It's the words, if only everyone knew. It's four words that have shot through everybody's mind from time to time. If only everyone knew. You've thought it, I've thought it. But there are two hearts behind these words. The first heart said, if only everyone knew what I bring. If only everyone knew my leadership. If only everybody knew my potential, what I can really do. If only everyone knew my talent. If only everyone knew my expertise. I would get that promotion. I'd be asked to lead. I'd be asked to speak. People would trust me more. If only everyone knew what I bring to the table. It's just they don't see it. The second heart says... If only everyone knew the wretch that I am, the things that I've done, the desires that I have, the messes that I've made, the hurt that I've caused. If only everyone knew, they probably would want nothing to do with me. And so I'll serve humbly and I'll submit graciously and I'll live grateful that God still offers me mercy. One heart lives in constant frustration. 
And we all know what that frustration is like because we've been guilty of it. The other heart lives in blessed bliss. And Jesus that day said, heart number two is mine. Heart number two is all mine. Oh, I know the things you've done. I see the desires of your heart. I know you for who you are. I see the messes. I've tasted the hurt that you've caused, but I want you. I'm not mad at you, I'm mad about you. And your failures are not greater than my success on the cross. It's here in your nothing that you find everything. You are in the very best position to know full well my love and my grace. Blessed are, happy are, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.